According to the clock back there, I have a full hour and 30 minutes. That's a joke, I promise. I hope, we'll see. Um, I'd like to start this sermon with a prayer, if you don't mind joining me. Dear Father, we come before you thankful for the chance to dive into your word. Uh, Lord, um, I ask that you be present in this message, that these words are not my words, but your words, and that our hearts remain open, our minds open, that your spirit can move profoundly in this moment, that we can walk out of here challenged, shaped, and changed by the beautiful power of your holy word. Lord, we ask that you breathe life into us, that you breathe joy into us, that you help us to open our eyes to grace, to gratitude all around us, and that we're motivated to generosity because of the nature of you and the nature of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. There is no topic other than God himself in the pages of Scripture that the Bible talks more about than the concept of money. That means that it is impossible to separate our relationship with one from our relationship with the other. The way we engage with money necessarily will impact the way we engage with God. And the way we engage with God will necessarily impact the way we engage with money. If God chooses to spend that much time on the concept of money, then, you know, maybe we should too. And that's what motivated us to have this series, the 3G sermon series we find ourselves in today. In this, we've been exploring these ideas of three Gs, grace, from God that results in gratitude in our hearts that shows itself in generosity towards the world. Grace, gratitude, and generosity. But these three G's are not just something arbitrarily we came up with. We didn't just sit around and be like, hey, what are three G words that kind of go together that we could do a series on? Which, by the way, letting you in behind the curtain, that actually does happen sometimes. We need to finish an alliteration, you know, so we're, we're looking at thesaurus.com. This isn't one of those moments. There is a deep connection between grace, gratitude, and generosity in the scriptures. Dad has done a good job so far in the series, and we'll continue on. But generally speaking, when I speak in a series, my job is to kind of dive into the scriptures and tell the story of the Bible through what the lens that we're studying, connecting it all together, pulling a thread, if you will, and seeing how it unwinds through the pages of scripture. Today, I would like us to grab onto the thread of giving and money, and I'd like us to pull and pull tight and let the scriptures guide us as we get pulled through the story of the Bible. Keep your eyes out this morning for grace, gratitude, and generosity in the story that we'll be telling. I also want to offer a bit of a prologue that this has been a sermon that I have prayed over more than most because I feel hyper-unworthy to give this message. Um, this has been something that has radically affected Madison and I. We've talked a lot this, these last couple weeks in preparation for this sermon. And frankly, I don't feel good enough on this topic to be here talking to you. Understand that today I'm going to step on toes, and it's not really me, it's just I'm going to be reading what the Bible has to say on some things. 
And if you're like me, your toes are going to hurt really bad at the end of this. And for a while, I tried to whitewash it, and I tried to clean it up so that I felt okay, better about giving this lesson. I tried to make it less intense and pull down some of the stuff and, you know, tap it down a little bit. But then I thought, you know what? I had to sit in the uncomfortable stuff that God has to say sometimes, and it was beneficial. So today I'm going to ask you to sit in some of the uncomfortable things God has to say with me, beside me, because it's challenging to me. That's the prologue. Hour and 26 minutes left. Let's begin back in creation, and let's pull this thread all the way through the story of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. Like I said, we're going all the way back to the very beginning. And God spends time in labor creating the world out of nothing. Looking into the chaotic abyss, he shapes this beautiful universe. Planets and the skies, the trees and vegetation. He fashions the animal from the dust, and he makes sure they all look beautiful and stunning. He carves the canyons and pours the waterfalls every day for six days, according to the story he is working. And he looks out in the middle of day six, and he takes a breath. The fruits of his labor has produced a stunning world and an even more stunning universe. But he wasn't done. No, he created kind of the apex of all of his creation, the two image bearers, the king and queen of creation, Adam and Eve. But even then he wasn't done. He talks to them. He gives them a lesson. Do you remember the first thing he ever said to them? Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 through 30. Then God said, I now give you everything. Every seed-bearing plants on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours. I give them to you and to all the animals I give you of earth and to every bird of the air I give it to you. And to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the living breath in it, I give you. And it was so. It was God's effort that created the creation. It was his work that tirelessly fashioned the universe. And yet he taught Adam and Eve right there at the precipice of creation a very valuable lesson. The fruits of labor are only beneficial when they bless others. He had every right to remain king of his domain. He had every right to hold to creation to his chest, but he didn't. Moments after he finished the labor of creation, he gave it to Adam and Eve. I find it interesting in that context, then, that you notice that there is another change that happens at the end of the day. Day one, two, three, four, five, up to six. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. But now, now he has fulfilled his labor. Now he shared it. He blessed others with it. He gave it, and now it's very good. It was just good when it was just his. But it became very good when it became ours. Do you notice the change? Right there in the Garden of Eden, God gives a very valuable lesson. Work hard. Labor hard but share it and bless it, because that's the purpose of labor. 
Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, Solomon puts it like this. A generous soul will prosper, and he who refreshes others himself will find refreshment. God revealed for us his grace in creation and giving it to God, or excuse me, giving it to Adam. And this idea compelled Adam and Eve to gratitude. They began to give back to creation. Do you see how this works? God gave. That caused Adam and Eve to want to give. And they cared for the garden. They worked tirelessly for it. Adam named every creature. He made sure they all had food. He, he tended to all of the plants. He worked tirelessly on behalf of creation. Why? Because he was motivated by God's grace. God set out the framework. Work hard to bless others. This idea is innately divine. They're at the very beginning. And it's desired for humanity to live out and function with forever. Labor hard and give the blessings of your labor to others. Bless the world with your effort. But this model would take a massive hit. A massive hit when Adam and Eve found themselves at the Garden of Eden upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as the story goes, Adam and Eve chose sin to rebel against God. And in so doing, found themselves booted out of God's paradise garden. And they were walking the face of the earth, dust-ridden with thorns under their feet. And it wouldn't take long for humanity to lose sight of this divine model of giving. As man grew more accustomed to life outside of Eden, a new idea began to matriculate in the minds of humans. This is a very dangerous word. And a word that God would spend the entire rest of the Bible trying to undo in the mind of his people. But it's the word accumulate. Accumulate. In the garden, they had what they needed. They didn't care about storehouses and barns. They didn't need anything to be put away for a rainy day. But now, people were scared. They were afraid. They didn't have God's provision, or at least they didn't think so. So in this new world order, people started to hold tighter to things. Started to, to carry things really close to their chest. We see in the story right after the garden of Cain and Abel. Do you remember that story? It goes something like this. In an act of worship, Abel and Cain would bring sacrifices to God. And Abel would give the firstborn of everything that he had to God. And that's really dangerous because there wasn't ever a promise that he would get a second. So he made sure that he gave his first to God without any promise of anything else. Cain, on the other hand, stored. And once he felt that he had enough in his barn, once he felt like he had enough for security, then he reached off the top of the pile and he threw some to God. God wasn't pleased with that. Why? Because it was all about accumulating for self. This led Cain to anger. And as the story goes, Cain killed Abel in an act of frustration over the giving. Made him mad. But the story of Cain doesn't end there. He's kicked out of the family of Adam. He's forced to walk the earth. But do you remember how his story ends in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 19? He accumulates and accumulates, excuse me, verse 17 through 19. He accumulates and accumulates and accumulates until eventually he has to build cities to store all of the stuff that he held tight to. Ironically, those same cities we're going to come back to in just a moment. Newsflash. 
they're not great. The result of accumulation. More, I want more and more and more. And at first, you see how this happens. It doesn't start bad. Cain's scared. Cain's very scared. Well, what if, what if there's a bad harvest? What if the winter comes? What if I, I need more food than I have access to? I'm going to make sure that I'm taken care of, that my family's taken care of before I ever give to God. That's a reasonable conclusion to draw. But it's not the way God designed it. It's not what God had in mind. It doesn't really flow with what happened in the Garden of Eden in creation. And then we kind of move forward. From the point of Cain and Abel, it gets worse and worse and worse, and it begins to go downhill. Pretty fast it goes downhill. People become selfish, prideful. They want more and more and more. And eventually the whole world is a world of just self-interest. Violence is rampant. Pride and greed and, and corruption is rampant. So much so that humanity brings a flood upon themselves. And they're almost entirely wiped out. Save Noah. When Noah comes off of the ark into the new world that has been fashioned, Genesis chapter 9, God actually gives the exact same commands he gave to Adam and Eve. He tries to get it reset in the mind of humanity. I now give you everything. I now give. Hoping that a reset will help remind Noah and his family that giving is the key. And it works, kind of, for a little bit. But a chapter later, it no longer works. One chapter after God tried to reframe the mind of humanity back to the mindset of divine giving, they find themselves back in the thrall of accumulation. They want more and more and more. And we see that Nimrod comes around. Nimrod, one of my favorite insults when I was a kid, until I learned that it's actually a very important biblical character. Still a really good insult, though. Not that you should ever insult anyone. Um, but Nimrod was a valiant warrior on the earth, and he began to conquer other cities. First one to ever do that, by the way. He led an army for the first time. He, he took over other cities, from Babel to Erech to Akkad to Kalana and to all the land of Shinar. He conquers it. Why? Because it wasn't just enough to accumulate what I work on, but now I want more. I want what they have. You see how this changes? Pretty quickly. I want security is how it starts with Cain. That's reasonable enough. Not great, but reasonable. But that quickly turns to I want more, which quickly turns to I want yours. And on and on the cycle goes. Nimrod introduced this idea of doing whatever it takes to keep, maintain, and protect your wealth. To the point that selfishness is unleashed everywhere. We're going to skip ahead now in the story because if we went at this pace, it would be like two hours long. So time jump with me to Genesis chapter 19. And here in a second, we're about to time jump all the way from like Exodus to Malachi. So it'll speed up. Genesis chapter 19, we're introduced to two cities. Ironically, two of the cities that were helped, founded by Cain, and then eventually uh, were conquered by Nimrod. There are sister cities right next to each other, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ooh, this is like in Christian literature and Jewish literature, those names are taboo because they're so wicked, so evil. Why were they so evil? 
What was it about them that was such an abomination to God? Why was he so furious with Sodom and Gomorrah? You may have a couple of guesses in your mind, but let's see what the Bible has to say. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. See here, the prophet says, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. We're about to get the answer. What did Sodom and Gomorrah do that brought the wrath of God upon them? She and her daughters had majesty, abundance, and enjoyed ease. But there was poor in their midst. They were haughty and practiced this abominable deed before me. Therefore, when I saw it, I had to remove them. What was the evil, abominable sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? The thing that made God so angry, so confused. How could humanity even do this? It was that there were people who were rich beside people who were poor. And the rich did nothing. There was an abundance of food in the barn for one family, but starvation in the next. And God looked at it and said, how did we get here? How did we get here? So he removed Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth. He was like, this cannot happen anywhere else. This is insane. This is so far away from the Garden of Eden of working to give and blessing others, giving generously and liberally of the first fruits of what you have. This is not at all what I had in mind. An entire city of Cain's, an entire city of Nimrod's, and so he took it away. And then in the minds of the Jews, he kept reminding them, Sodom and Gomorrah was awful. Don't be that. For this reason, God tried to form a new creation in Israel, a new kingdom with a new form of economy, a new way of living, a new way of viewing money. As different from Sodom and Gomorrah as God could conceive, he created a new place, Israel. He went and gathered his people from Egypt. He brought them out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he tried to teach them something new. See, they had come from a Sodom and Gomorrah-like place in Egypt. A place where there was rich and there was poor. A place where the rich just tried to get richer and the poor did their best just to live. And God pulled them from, the wilderness, or from Egypt into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, before he gave them land, before he even gave them a law, he was trying to change their mind on this. Do not accumulate what you don't need. So how does he do it? Manna. That's his answer. Manna from heaven. Do you remember how manna works? You wake up in the morning, you open your tent, bread on the ground. And then you eat. Eat as much as you want. You'll be full. You'll be full. But then it goes away. You can't save it. There's no barns to store it in. No storehouses that you can put it in. It's gone. And if you tried, by the way, it got real nasty real quick. It says that maggots began to infest it. Diseases would actually break out if people tried to, to, to hoard it. So, the people survived on their daily bread from God. Every day, what they needed. No accumulation. No storehouses. No Cain, no Sodom, no Gomorrah. Just living day by day in the arms of God. When he finally realized, thinks the people gets it, he takes them up to Sinai and he begins to teach them. He goes, okay, so you see how this works. Do you see the manna? Okay, I'm going to take it a step further. Let's talk about the law of Moses. 613 laws I give you, the grand majority of which are about money. How you spend it, what you do with it. 
So of these 613 laws, he spends law after law after law after law saying, hey, this is how I want you to think about wealth. This is how I want you to think about possessions. Perhaps the most beautiful and radical is Deuteronomy chapter 15. If you're following along, usually I just kind of read the verses for you. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 15 because this one is wild. I'm also going to use this time to take a drink of water. Okay, <clears throat> this is the uh, new economy of Israel on full display, trying to return people to the mindset of creation. At the end of every seven years, you must declare, get this, this is wild, you ready? A cancellation of all debt. This is the nature of cancellation. Every creditor must remit what he has loaned to another. He must not force payment from his fellow Israelite for it is recognized as God's cancellation of debt. You may pay exact payment from a foreigner, but whatever your fellow Israelite owes you, remit. However, there should not... Ooh, this is it. Ready? You zoned in? There should not be any poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that he is giving you. If you carefully obey and keep his commandments then you shall be blessed. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend to many nations, but not borrow from any. You will rule over nations, but they will not rule you. Ready? He doubles down. Just in case you missed it, if a fellow Israelite from one of your villages is giving, uh, excuse me, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you should be poor, do not harden your heart against them. Listen. Give them whatever he needs and open your hand to him freely. Be careful, lest you entertain evil thoughts, such as, well, the year of cancellation is coming soon. Maybe I won't help. This is an attitude of wickedness towards your impoverished fellow neighbor. And if you do not lend him anything, he will cry out to me, and you will be regarded as having sinned. You must by all means lend to him, not be upset doing it. For because of this, the Lord will bless you in all your work and everything you attempt. There will never cease to be some poor in the land. Therefore, I am commanding you to keep your hand open to your fellow brothers, to those who are needy and those who are poor. Woven in the very kingdom charter of this new law is the idea of, first, we're going to give, and we're going to give liberally, hilariously, ridiculously to everyone. There is not to be a poor person in the land of God. Why? Because every other person should care so much for them with such an open hand to give. The, the, this goes on, and I cut it off early because we could read that passage and similar laws for the rest of the sermon. But there are passages like, hey, if, if, you, uh, if you need to give your brother a loan and they want to pawn something to you, like their coat, they give you the, your, their coat, you hold this until I can pay it back. He says, before the sun even goes down, return it, lest he gets cold at night and needs it. And then he says, for if that brother cries out to the Lord, he will hear his cries. God listens and God sees. Israel loved that idea and for a while it worked. In fact, for a while they were incredibly generous. But then something happened. They got a promised land. They got a farm on their own. Manna stopped falling from heaven and it started growing in the fields. And all of a sudden, storehouses started popping up in barns. People began to accumulate for themselves 
wealth became something you wanted, and so you pursued desperately with reckless abandon more and more and more and more and more and more. They wanted more and more and more, and it didn't really matter how they got it or who they had to say no to to keep it. This frustrated God. So he sent them to exiles, in fact, four different times. They were sent into exile exclusively for their treatment of the poor. The people rose up and wanted a king, someone to rule them. What did God say through Samuel and 1 Samuel 8? All he's going to want is to accumulate more, and you're giving them the power to do it. People said, give it to us anyway, and what happened? Solomon happened. Storehouses of gold for who? Not for the people. No, 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 no. For him. There became an upper class of the society that became exceptionally wealthy, and the rest in starvation. They stopped giving, started accumulating, wanting more and more for themselves until the kings turned wicked, corrupted. This outraged God, outraged him so much, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Prophets like Amos. As God looks out on the land and sees people in their summer and winter homes while at their doorstep is the poor. He says this in Amos chapter 3 verse 15, starting there and we'll go on. I will destroy both winter and summer homes. The houses that are filled with ivory and treasures will be ruined. The great houses will be swept away. This is the Lord's holy decree. Listen to this message, you fat cows of Bashan who live high and mighty on Mount Samaria. You have ignored the poor. And in so doing, you have crushed my needy. You say to those around you, give me more. I want finer wines. It permeated everywhere. Everyone became obsessed with more. Accumulation. Every city in Israel became Sodom. Every city in Israel became Gomorrah. Every person became Cain. So they went to exile. They had lost their distinctiveness God pressed a hard reset and took everything from them because they couldn't be trusted to give. They were rich. It says in the time of Queen Sheba that she came to see Solomon and went out saying, there is no place on earth like Israel because of the wealth of the few. Giving fell away. They lost sight of grace they lost sight of gratitude, and they lost sight of generosity. God himself reveals this truth to us, the truth that undid Israel in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, he says. Listen to this part. This is the part we don't like to say. You have to hate one to love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. Israel lost that, began to love money and in so doing, lost God. The minute they became comfortable with accumulation is the minute they lost him completely. That Greek word there, despise, is a fun one. So like, I hate raccoons. This is a well-known fact. Sorry, Rilla. Um, I am terrified of them. Absolutely petrified of them. They have thumbs, and no creature should have thumbs. Where can you hide? Like, honestly. They'll unzip your tent. They can open a doorknob. These things are devastating. Uh, anyway, one day, Madison and I were walking in our house in Henderson back when I lived in there for college, and uh, we were walking down the road and out of a sewer drain. I'm probably going to exaggerate some of this. Um, there was a raccoon that looked like a small cub, like a bear, 
And it came out, and it was foaming at the mouth with, like, red eyes and, like, chittering at me. Uh, it stood on its hind legs and did that whole, like, it's petrified. Petrified. What did I do? I jumped back. Why? Because I despise that thing. That's exactly the mental image I want you to have when you see that word despised in the Greek. It means to be revolted, to withdraw, to push away out of fear. What is he saying? Despise money. Push it away. Be fearful. Not fearful of it, but just be fearful of what it can do to you. Keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on your heart. Because before you know it, you'll be like Cain, building storehouses to make sure you're safe. Realizing that you're just giving off of the top of your grain pile to God. Just a little bit. It takes that much for you to lose sight of being in God's arms. As we conclude, Christ comes, and as Christ does, he changes everything. Except this. He actually doubles down on this. He changes a lot about the old law. In fact, he spends a lot of time turning it on its head over and over and over again. But in this one instance, he actually claims that the Old Testament got it right. That giving is actually more important in the new covenant than it was in the old. See, Jesus comes and he starts teaching radical teachings. Wild teachings. About giving to anyone who asks. Not just brothers in Israel, now just to all. And give it liberally and generously. And as we'll see in a moment, he says some pretty profound commands that oftentimes we just, frankly, in 21st century America, we like to skip over. Notice the language around wealth and possessions in the, in the New Testament. It stand, they stand in opposition to God, Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Possessions and its wealth are to be despised, Matthew 6, 24. They are deceitful in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. They are capricious. 1 Timothy 6, 17. To be guarded against at all cost. Luke 12, 15. Its, the, its desire is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6, 10. It's an obstacle to the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Wealth is dangerous, Jesus says. Because you're going to fall into the, the, the trap of Cain, of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says this to counter that. He goes, okay, so now it's dangerous. We get it? It's going to corrupt you. It's going to corrode you because it just does. You're going to become obsessed with it, worried about it. When your bank account goes low, you're going to be terrified. When, when you don't think you have enough, you're going to be petrified. Why? Because you put trust in it. You're worried about your storehouses and not the God in heaven. Jesus is aware of that. In fact, the longest critique of stress in the Bible comes on the tail end of Jesus talking about money. Why? Because if you don't trust God, you don't despise money, then it will corrupt you into fear. So he says things like this. I'm going to read passages you've probably read a hundred times, but I'm going to put emphasis on different parts of it. You ready? Do not accumulate for yourself treasures on earth. That's what he says. Because things will happen. You'll lose them. They'll break. When you need them most, they'll disappear. Give to the one who asks, he says in Matthew 5, 42. And do not reject any who wish to borrow anything from you. Then there's a warning. Matthew 19, 24. Again, I say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
The early Christians listened to this. It really impacted them. They began to become very afraid, and they realized that they had fallen victim to this. So what did they do? Do you remember? They gave ridiculously. Hilariously, literally, is the word used in the Bible. Laugh out loud amounts of money they gave. What's funny about that is one of the most popular quoted passages of the Old Testament amongst the first century church comes out of Haggai, of all places. Haggai chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and it says this. Is it right for you to live in richly paneled homes while I and my home lie in ruins? Hear then what the Lord of armies says. Think carefully on what you're doing. You have planted much, but look, do you feel that you've harvested any? You eat, but are you ever filled? You drink, but aren't you still thirsty? You put on clothes, but you're never warm enough. Those who earn wages, it seems that you're putting them in bags with holes in them. What is he saying? If you trust in money, you'll always feel empty. So what is Jesus' answer? Give it. Give more of it. Give liberally. Give ridiculously. Give hilariously. I'd like to end out here. This is the part where Madison and I had to have some pretty serious conversations about our heart. Just full disclosure. Um, and this is the part where I... I it hit me really, really hard. I've read this passage a dozen times, but this time, this time got me. Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together. They held everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared money with those who were in need. A couple chapters later, Acts chapter 4, there was no poor among the church because those who owned lands or even their own homes would sell their property and bring the proceeds to distribute to all who had need. It took a thousand years from the time Moses first said it in Deuteronomy 15 until it actually got done. It took a Savior dying on a cross, but they got there. They got there. Let me ask you a question. This is where I'm just going to end a sermon abruptly. I'm just going to throw this out to you. I'm going to sit in the uncomfortableness of what I'm about to say. Because my answer really, really hit me hard. Are you more like Cain or more like Barnabas? Barnabas who sold all to give. Or Cain who stored all to save. Are we more in a community like Sodom and Gomorrah? or the early church. Those statements haunted me. Still, still haunt me. And I stand here today not giving you a sermon where I've mastered perfectly. I'm not being like, look how generous I am. I never worry about money. <laughs> but I'm here as a Christian saying the same thing. Wow. I have a long way to go. Let's pray.